G'day, welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. My name is Tanya Chapman, and in this case, the children of Essie Lipscone believe that their sibling Joy Gardner had abused their mother. They believed it so much that they started court proceedings that ultimately cost all of the money in the estate, and when court orders were finally made, they might very well have been worthless. From 1994 to her death in 2006, Essie was cut off from seven of her children because of the contentious relationship between one of her children, Joy Gardner, and her seven siblings. However, as the court notes, it is often impossible to work out who is at fault when there is a family estrangement. The siblings appeared to be upset and genuinely affected by the fact that they had limited contact with their mother for such a long period of time and they genuinely believed that Joy had undermined and destroyed their relationship with their mother. Joy had a different perception of events. She believed that her siblings were critical of the care she provided their mother, and she was critical of them for not helping out more. Background Essie Lila Lipscomb was born in 1919. She had eight children. Essie purchased the family home at 60 Princess Highway in Ulladulla, New South Wales, with money she received after the death of her husband in a work-related accident in 1956. Essie's second youngest child was Joy. She left home when she was 25 and married. In 1985, her marriage broke up and her mother invited Joy to move back in with her into the family home. In 1994, Essie had a major bowel operation, after which she became completely reliant on Joy. She was in a wheelchair and did not leave the house on her own. Joy was her primary carer and began receiving the carer's pension. She looked after Essie, including washing, bathing, personal grooming, toileting, laundry and housework. From 1994 until Essie's death in 2006, the other children state that Joy actively discouraged them from communicating with their mother that she would refuse to bring Essie to the phone or would hang up on them when they called, that she told them they weren't welcome in the house and rejected their offers to help care for their mum, that she cut them off from Essie with the result that Essie was emotionally and physically dependent on Joy alone. But this doesn't mean that Essie was a weak woman completely ruled by Joy. Even the siblings admitted that their mother was capable of asserting her views and making decisions for herself. The discord between Joy and her siblings was so strong that she didn't tell them when their mother was in hospital on her deathbed. During the court hearing, Joy dismissively said that she thought they already knew because Mrs Lipscomb was always at the hospital. The court wasn't required to determine who caused the estrangement, but they did note that, quote, Had it been necessary to do so, I would have found that the cause of the rifts between the siblings and hence their separation from their mother in the last years of her life was more likely than not to have been largely the conduct of Mrs Gardner. End quote. The Wills In 1995, Essie made a will which appointed her son-in-law, Mr. Brooks, as her executor, gave small gifts to each of her children, and gave Joy the right to reside in the house for the rest of her life, or until she got her own house, provided she pay the rates and taxes on the property. 
the residue was to be divided equally among the children. In March 2003, Essie made a new will which appointed Joy as executor. Well, the document actually uses the word executrix and the court refers to her as the executrix, but I hate that term. It is completely irrelevant whether the executor is male or female, and the term executor is more commonly used now to be male or female, but the legal profession is a little old-fashioned still. Regardless, I hate that term, I'm not going to use it. So, excuse the tangent back to the will. So, Joy is the executor and again is given the right to reside in the house for the rest of her life, except this time the liability to pay rates and taxes is shared equally between Joy and the estate. Each of the other seven children is left a gift of $2,000 each, and the residue is left to Joy. The house was pretty much the only asset that Essie had, so really it would only be if the house was sold that the children would get their $2,000 each, and the rest of the proceeds would go to Joy. At some time around 2003, there was an altercation in the family home between Joy and her fiancé Fred Hughes on one hand, and three of the siblings on the other. During the altercation, Joy said words to the effect of, I will fight you to the end, mark my words, I'm fighting this to the bitter end. This seemed to infer that Joy was worried that her siblings would challenge Essie's will. Joy thought that her siblings were out to get her and told her mother this. In mid-2004, Joy told her mother that her siblings would throw her out of the house when Essie died, that they were going to take everything and leave her nothing. Almost immediately afterwards, Joy contacted the solicitor and told him that Essie wanted to change her will. On 7th of July 2004, solicitor Mr Ryan visited Essie to get instructions for changing the will, and Joy was present at the meeting. Oddly, the very next day, Joy contacted another solicitor, Mr Richardson, and made arrangements with him for her mother to change her will. There was no reason given for this change in solicitor and Mr Ryan wasn't called to give evidence, which is a shame because I wonder what he said to make Joy replace him so quickly. The court noted that surprisingly Mr Richardson didn't question the overnight change of solicitors, something they said should have raised questions about the change of heart. Mr Richardson instead directed himself to Joy's main concern, that her siblings would challenge the will. He advised Essie and Joy about notional estate, which I'll go into a little bit later and family provision claims. He took steps to get a medical certificate that could be used as evidence that Essie had capacity to change her will. Mr Richardson met with Essie in her home on the 13th of July 2004, with Joy present. It was during this meeting that it was first instructed to Mr Richardson that the family home was to be transferred to Joy. Joy said words to the effect of, My mum wants me to have the house. And Essie said, I want Joy to have the house. Mr Richardson's notes from this meeting record that Joy was already arranging a valuation of the house and it was expected to come in at 340000 From this meeting, Mr Richardson came to the conclusion that Essie understood what she was doing and he had instructions to prepare the transfer of the house. He would get further instructions for the will once Mr Ryan had sent him the previous will. The transfer. The day after his meeting with Essie on the 14th of July, Mr Richardson's office got a telephone message from Mr Gardner, one of Essie's sons, saying that he was concerned that his mother was being unduly influenced by his sister. And the court found this interesting for two reasons. One, how in hell did Mr Gardner even know Essie was planning to change her will, let alone what solicitor she was using? 
And two, Mr. Richardson never followed up on this. This raises a significant concern, yet he didn't call Mr. Gardner back to find out more. And he didn't speak with Essie to let her know about the call, or to confirm with her that she wasn't being unduly influenced. By letter dated 16th July, Mr. Ryan sent to Mr. Richardson Essie's previous will, which should have made it clear to Mr. Richardson that Essie didn't need to change her will in order to protect Joy's right to reside in the house. Perhaps this is why they changed lawyers overnight. Maybe Mr. Ryan told Essie that she didn't need to change her will at all, and Joy didn't agree. Mr. Richardson met with Essie again on the 29th of July to get instructions for her will and for drafting a statutory declaration. A statutory declaration is a sworn statement. In this case, it was a statement from Essie about her relationship with her children, explaining her reasons for making her will as she had. It's like evidence from the grave, so that if the children make a challenge to the will, Essie won't be alive to defend her actions, but they'll have this statutory declaration as her evidence. The court had serious concerns as to whether the contents of the statutory declaration were influenced by Joy directly or what Joy was telling her mother. During this meeting, Mr. Richardson told Joy to check with Centrelink whether the transfer would affect Essie's pension. After all, she was basically given away her primary asset. A couple of days later, there was another meeting to discuss the transfer. Joy told Mr. Richardson that if Essie transferred the house to her, her pension would be reduced by $70 a fortnight. Mr. Richardson took no steps to confirm that this was correct, to make sure that Essie had this information as well, and to see whether this was acceptable to Essie. On the 12th of August, Essie signed the codicil to her will. Basically, a codicil is a document making a change to your will without having to do an entirely new will. The codicil left the residue of the estate to Joy and only really changed the substitute beneficiaries. Essie also signed the statutory declaration and the transfer form to transfer the family home to Joy for $1. Now that she had given the house to Joy, the court noted that this made the provision in the will which left Joy a right to reside in the house for the rest of her life, otios. Which I have decided to make the word of the day, otios, which means serving no practical purpose. Yes, I had to look it up. It's a little bit odd that Essie did the transfer and codicil on the same day, but didn't take the opportunity to remove the now useless right of residence clause from her will. There were several inaccuracies in the statutory declaration. For example, quote, Joy has lived with and cared for me since I became ill in 1976, and she has been my full-time carer during the whole of that period, end quote. But Joy didn't move in until 1985, and she didn't become a full-time carer until 1994. So there was inaccuracies like that in the statutory declaration that made the court question the accuracy of the statement and where the information came from. During the court hearing, Joy tried to argue that she didn't even know about the transfer until the 12th of August 2004. However, this was not believable given that she told Mr. Richardson she had already organised a valuation when they had their first meeting in July, and she had also taken steps to find out whether the transfer would affect her mother's pension. The Court Hearing There were two applications before the court. 
a family provision claim by seven of the eight children to receive a greater share of the estate. If you'll remember, they only get $2,000 each under the will. And a claim of undue influence to have the house transferred back into the estate. It was clear that if the undue influence claim was unsuccessful, there wouldn't be enough assets in the estate to make greater provision for the other seven children, which meant that the family provision claim would be unsuccessful as well. So it was important that the undue influence claim be considered first. There were also initial claims in probate that the 2003 will and the 2004 codicil were invalid, but this was dropped before the hearing probably because the family provision claim and undue influence claim had a better chance of succeeding, and if they did, they wouldn't need the probate claim. They did look at the history and the circumstances in which the transfer was done. The siblings argued that at the time of the transfer, Essie was in ill health, frail and elderly. She didn't receive any independent legal advice or financial advice before signing the transfer. They said that Joy did not get their mother's fully informed consent to the transfer. Notional estate. I said previously that I was going to explain this. Um, So the court also considered whether the family home should be designated as notional estate. Notional estate is assets and property that would normally not form part of the deceased person's estate, such as assets they distributed during their lifetime, assets held jointly with other persons, or superannuation. In this case, where the deceased owned an asset, being the house, and gave it away for less than its market value, then the court could say that that was notional estate, and bring the asset, being the house, back into the estate in order to make provision for an eligible person under a family provision claim. There are some restrictions though. The transaction must have happened in the three years before the death. Any older than that, and it can't be notional estate. If the transaction was within the last 12 months before the death, it may be notional estate if the deceased had an obligation to make provision for someone that was more important than the transaction. If the transaction was more than 12 months before the death, but less than 3 years, it is only notional estate if the deceased entered into the transaction with an intention to prevent provision being made to an eligible person from the estate. So if you transfer a property just before you die in order to thwart family provision law in New South Wales, the court could deem it to be notional estate and drag it back in. But it has to have that purpose behind it of avoiding family provision law. If there's another primary purpose behind it, it won't be notional estate. That's a very brief explanation of notional estate. There's a lot more to it, but you probably just want me to get on with this case. In this case, the house was transferred to Joy about two years before Essie's death, and for only $1, so definitely not for full value. However, it wasn't notional estate because the court found that there was no evidence to suggest that Essie had transferred the house to Joy in order to prevent the other children getting a share. Undue influence. Undue influence is where there is a sufficient relationship of dependency upon the gift giver and or domination by the gift recipient. The critical element is the impaired judgment of the weaker party. 
The basis of this principle isn't that Joy did anything wrong, but that their relationship was such that she was able to influence her mother's actions to such an extent that Essie would not have been able to refuse. The court found that Essie depended and relied upon Joy and trusted her. She was frail, in a deteriorating condition, elderly, isolated, and for years had been relying on Joy for all of her needs, care, and companionship. Quote, I am of the view that in circumstances where Mrs. Gardner had been the primary carer of the deceased for some years, the deceased was elderly and frail, and the deceased depended for her daily care on Mrs. Gardner, even down to Mrs. Gardner making all phone calls on her behalf. The deceased's contacts with her other children, whether due to Mrs. Gardner's manipulative or disruptive behaviour or otherwise, was limited. There was a clear relationship of dependence such as to give rise to a presumption of undue influence. The fact that the deceased felt able at times to state her own views or not to accede to Miss Gardner's wishes does not in my view detract from the clear position of dependency, end quote. Further, the court referred to the fact that Essie took steps to protect her daughter from the siblings' reported schemes without attempting to determine for herself whether the schemes were real or not and whether Joy even needed protecting. This strengthened the court's conclusion that Essie trusted and relied on Joy and that Joy was able to influence her in order to gain a benefit. The court determining that the presumption of undue influence applies is only the first step. Next, Joy has the opportunity to prove that the presumption doesn't apply in this case in relation to the transfer, that in fact her mother had made the gift independently and of her own free will. Joy tried to argue that her mother received legal advice. However, the court noted that it needed to be independent and competent legal advice, that it wasn't enough for the solicitor to explain the contents and effect of the document. They also needed to warn the clients of the risk and of the alternative options available to them. There was no evidence that Essie was warned that in transferring the house her pension would be reduced or that her own right to live in the house was not protected. Joy could kick her out, could sell the house, or Joy could die and leave the house to her own children. She also wasn't told that she didn't need to transfer the house because her will already gave Joy the right to live there. The court noted that Mr Richardson didn't ask Essie why she was seeking advice from a different solicitor immediately after having spoken to Mr Ryan, nor did he tell her about her son having raised the concern that she was being unduly influenced, and he didn't determine for himself whether that was the case. The court also referred to the fact that the transfer happened just after Joy formed the opinion that her siblings were proposing to throw her out of the house after their mother's death. All of this, as well as the haste in which the transaction was done, made the court doubt that Essie did the transfer with a fully informed mind. Joy was not able to prove that the transfer was done by Essie independently and of her own free will. So the transfer to her of the family home was set aside and it was ordered that she hold the home on trust for the estate. Mr Richardson's evidence was that at the time of giving him instructions for the transfer, Essie was clear and lucid and her capacity was not impaired. He asked her when Joy wasn't present, whether she was absolutely sure she wanted to transfer the house to Joy, and she said she was. He was confident that there had not been any undue influence, but the court found that this was based almost entirely on the fact that Essie had capacity and the court stated that her capacity was not the issue. It was whether the relationship of influence Joy had over Essie prevented Essie from making this, this decision of her own free will. The siblings also argued unconscionable conduct. 
I've mentioned before that undue influence and unconscionable conduct can be confused with each other and are very similar and are often argued at the same time. In some cases, a transaction has been found to fall under both. It was argued to be unconscionable conduct because Essie was vulnerable and at a special disadvantage by reason of her age and emotional and physical dependence on Joy, and that Joy knew about this disadvantage and used her superior position to take advantage of Essie. For undue influence, there doesn't need to have been any wrongful action by Joy, but for unconscionable conduct, there does. In this case, the court found that there was no medical evidence that Essie was at a special disadvantage, and no evidence that Joy took advantage of this. She arranged for her mother to get legal advice, and while that advice was not sufficient, that was not due to Joy. I'm not sure I agree with that second part. I wouldn't say that Joy was all that interested in making sure her mother got legal advice. I think she only arranged for a solicitor to get help with doing the codicil and the transfer. And saying that insufficient advice was not the fault of Joy, well, that's not entirely the case if Joy is the only one giving instructions to the solicitor. She can guide what kind of advice the solicitor gives. But that's just my take on it. Obviously, the court didn't agree. So in this case, the claims for unconscionable conduct wasn't successful, but the claim for undue influence was. Family Provision Claim All seven children made a claim for greater provision from the estate, but that doesn't mean that they will all be successful and all be awarded the same amount. The court takes into account a lot of things, including each child's individual circumstances, such as their current assets, health status, ability to support themselves, and their relationship with their mother. It assesses each child individually to determine whether, in regard to a particular child, the mother should have made greater provision for them. The court found that the will hadn't made sufficient provision for three of the children, Margaret, Shirley and Jennifer. The court ordered that the estate be divided, 10% each to Margaret and Shirley, 5% to Jennifer, who had been estranged from her mother since 1969 but had greater financial need, and 75% to Joy. There was also the proviso that if the house sold for more than 220000 then the remaining siblings would be paid $2,000 each before it was divided in the percentages I mentioned. The court found that the bulk of the estate should go to Joy because for about 20 years she was responsible for caring for their mother. Despite those orders, it is unlikely much provision would be made. The house was estimated to be worth between 210 to 230000 However, the legal costs by the time of the court hearing were 226000 So once all the legal fees were paid, there probably wouldn't be anything left over for anyone. If you're thinking that the legal costs are ridiculously high, consider this. Essie died in May 2006 and the court judgment was handed down in October 2009. That's about three years of legal negotiations preparing for hearing and then the hearing. That's three years for legal teams acting for both sides. So maybe not so unreasonable after all. Also, the seven siblings would have been warned about this, that even if they were successful, that after payment of legal costs, they might be left with nothing. But it seems they were so angered by Joy's actions that it was more important for them that she be held accountable. 
The counsel acting for Joy criticised the siblings for this, stating that the siblings hadn't commenced the proceedings honestly seeking relief, because they knew that even if they were successful, they wouldn't be likely to get anything. That instead their intentions had been simply to prevent Joy getting anything, to prevent her getting the house. Regardless, their claim for undue influence and part of the family provision claim were successful. Elder Abuse I believe that the seven children did believe that Joy had taken advantage of Essie to get her to transfer the house. I agree with this and with the court's finding of undue influence. After all, Essie was reliant on Joy for everything, and it's hard to imagine that Essie would feel like she could refuse Joy anything without risk losing the only child she was still close to. She still had capacity, and if all the relevant information had been put before her by an independent solicitor, and she alone instructed the solicitor, then maybe the transfer would have been fine. But she wasn't really given a chance to make an informed decision. Her daughter tells Essie that all of the siblings are planning to make her homeless. So this is the child that Essie is closest to, the one that's her carer, the one she relies on. And she's told that the other siblings are planning to oust her from the house. And these protective instincts are raised. And Joy immediately arranges for a solicitor to transfer the property, and Essie goes along with it. Where it came to the estrangement, it feels like the siblings were more focused on the loss to them, that they had lost the chance to have a relationship with their mother for many years before her death. And that is valid. They did lose the chance to re-establish the relationship with their mother. But I also think it doesn't give enough consideration to the mother's side. And that's what I think about. Although Essie had capacity and could make some decisions for herself, I believe the estrangement from her children was out of her control. She didn't know that Joy was preventing the other children from contacting her. She might have thought that her own children didn't want to visit her or call her, which would have made her feel isolated and even more dependent on Joy, because she didn't think anyone else would care for her. It's heartbreaking to think that for over a decade, Essie wasn't able to have a fully engaged relationship with all of her children and that she maybe died still thinking that her other children didn't care about her. For me, that was the greatest harm done to Essie. That was the case of Hewitt versus Gardner. The case citation is provided in the notes. If you have any thoughts on this case or recommendation of cases for me to cover, I'd love to hear them. You can email them to elderservice at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. A big thank you from the Elder Abuse Service for listening in. Remember, if you have identified or if you're at risk of elder abuse, you can call the helpline on 1800 353 374. Or if you are on the New South Wales Central Coast, you can contact our service on 02 4324 5611.